unfortunately, and I find it disturbing, though not surprising, if the word abuse is overused, it's going to lessen the impact of victims. Do you want to, do you want to, do you want to continue this theological discussion in a car? Or in a jailhouse from the cops? Often when we think about power, we think of it only in its negative connotations. We think about the misuse of power and the ways that power is used to hurt others. But what does it look like not just to use power in good and life-giving ways, but even to redeem power, to correct its misuse? Today we're talking with Dr. Diane Langberg about her new book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. We talk with Dr. Langberg about her work in counseling those who have been the victims of abuse and about how she maintains hope while walking with others through very difficult circumstances. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. We are excited to have Dr. Diane Langberg with us today on the podcast. Dr. Langberg, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you. So as we just are starting out, we're, we're in the middle of this series where we're talking about power. And so as we begin, uh, can I just ask you if you could give us a definition for power? What are we talking about when we talk about power? And then also, because so much of your work is, is around the misuse of power, could you give us a definition of abuse as well? Sure. Um, I always like looking up words and their roots and things. So, uh, and I think it's very important to really know what we're doing as we use words so loosely sometimes. But um, power basically is about the, the, the bottom line definition is to be able to, um, all human beings have it. And at the beginning of the book, I, I talk about the newborn who is hungry in the middle of the night and cries and two exhausted grown-ups get out of bed and fly into the other room. That's a lot of power. It really is. Yes. And, and so the smallest and the vulnerable, most vulnerable of us all have power and uh, it can be disregarded. You know, they could ignore the baby and let it starve to death, but, but it does have power potentially to um, abuse means to use another person wrong. And mm. so it, it means to use a human being in a way that is not good or right or just or any of those kinds of things. And we are using them in many ways to exploit them and feed ourselves something. Mm. Um, we can feed ourselves just a good feeling. We can feed ourselves all kinds of horrible things but they're there for our purpose when we abuse and we purpose to do something with them that is not right. Yeah. Um, gosh, that makes that's That's really helpful. So Dr. Langberg, you've been working in the field of, of trauma and abuse for almost a half century, I think caring for victims. <laughs> I'm afraid so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and so I would imagine the field has changed quite a bit in your time. Uh, you've been caring for victims in contexts when perhaps their families and maybe their churches wouldn't. And it, it seems like 
the tables have shifted in the last several years, and suddenly the church and our culture at large are recognizing that power and its abuse are important and pervasive issues. Uh, could you tell us maybe, first of all, how you got involved in this work? But, but from your perspective, has the way that we are talking about power changed in the last couple of years? I got involved in it before it was a concept. <laughs> um, you know, I've spent my career working with trauma and I cut my teeth, so to speak, on Vietnam vets and on many women who came to see me when I had just finished my master's. I hadn't started my doctorate yet. And they asked to see me because I was a female and there weren't very many in the psychology field doing clinical work at that time who were women. And they began slowly to tell me stories of sexual abuse as children, domestic abuse, situations in the home. Um, there was no diagnosis for post-traumatic stress disorder at the time. That came in 1980. So I was eight years before. And I was told uh, not to believe them when they talked about the abuse that women sometimes tell hysterical stories, and my job was not to get hooked by them. And uh, I listened to more women, and I finally decided not to talk to the supervisor about it and listen to the women. So I made that choice early on. And I told them, I don't have any idea how to help you. I have not lived what you have lived. But you, if you teach me, I'll tr try to figure out what's helpful. Wow. Man, that's that's wow. That's awesome. I, I'm, I'm really, uh, by the way, just thank you for that. Um, I'm a, a former chaplain in the Army National Guard. And so wow. I have done a lot of pastoral care for soldiers who have gone and their families who've gone through major traumatic stress and have no idea which end is up. And yes. what you what you just said to, about your posture towards victims is also the absolute first and best thing I found in talking with them of like, I have, I didn't, ex even if I experienced trauma, I've never experienced the trauma you did. Yes. And can you please teach me? And yes. that opens up doors that are just beautiful. And so I can't imagine having done that without the, like, you know, the, the actual training <laughs> to know what I'm doing. So to, to, for you to have done that without any kind of like rubric or framework is just, that's fantastic. And thank you for contributing to that. Yes. Yeah, so part of what happened was I realized that the soldiers and the women had the same symptoms. Mm. And yeah. I, you know, it made me scratch my head. I couldn't figure that out. And then I realized that there's actually more than one kind of war zone in the world. And sometimes home Oof. is a war zone. Oh, that is so tragic. Yes, it is. So in your, in your book, you begin talking about what power is, but at the same time, you really, this is kind of implicit and sometimes explicit, but you seem to be inviting the reader to very much acknowledge that we all possess some kind of power and, mm -hmm. and multiple kinds of power. And it seems like a lot of people with power in particular, and I'm, I'm thinking especially institutional or organizational power, uh, especially in the church, tend to ignore the reality of power. And by avoiding it, uh, any acknowledgement of, of power, we open ourselves and our churches, our communities up to abuse. And I, I kind of want to ask, ask two questions. Like one is, is that right? And is that new or has it kind of always been that way? And then two, why, why, what changed? Like, why are we, why is this conversation happening beyond just the uh, 
I mean, it's been there. I don't think that we're seeing an uptick in abuse. I think we're just starting to see it exposed and revealed to the light of day. So can you can you talk about the, how the the role of that acknowledgement uh, that we have power and why that's so important? Well, I think partly what if you look back through history and stuff, part of what the church has done is is not think about the power that it has, except that it has it and it's good and they're going to use it to do and mm-hmm. they can do whatever they want. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they can tell you, you know, God loves you and they can tell you God doesn't love you and he's going to punish you and they are the person who's supposed to help God. And they can tell you anything they want. Mm. So you mix those things with culture globally where you have uh, thinking particularly about males and females. Mm. And so I'm male and I'm in a position of authority in the church and therefore I get to do what I want and I get to say what I want and you're supposed to follow me. And if you don't, you don't love God. So there's been a gross misuse of Mm. that and also a lot of ignorance about it, both by the leaders and certainly by the sheep. Oh, yeah. I mean, a huge part of our thesis in, in, in exploring and doing this many years in the first place is that the church has largely not discipled. Uh, it's people in the areas of power at like at all. Like we, we have this idea, we, you know, we have a, you know, faith and work institute or we'll do a sermon series on marriage. But when was the last time we had a sermon series on how to steward power wisely or in a godly way? And so that real neglect, especially over time and intergenerationally has added up to like, everybody gets to define power kind of however they want to. And that now we're really reaching and trying to grasp at straws. It feels like. Yes, and and certainly there has been some change, but I would say that that change is in large part due to the voice of victims. Mm-hmm. They they and and social media has a role in that, for they have connected with each other. Sure, mm. yeah, and mm. they have begun begun to speak out, and they were certainly denigrated and things like that when that started. Um, but I think over time, people have come to realize that they they're calling us to righteousness. That's what they're doing. Yeah. They're not yeah. disturbing the church. I mean, they are, of course, but it's good. Jesus disturbed the temple. So that's not a bad thing to do necessarily. But they're calling us to righteousness. They're calling us to stand in the light and see. And one of the things they're calling us to see is the church and many so-called Christian homes have not been a refuge. Mm. Yeah. They've been a den of robbers. Which my understanding of that in, in, in the Greek is when Jesus called the temple a den of robbers, it means literally a safe place for those who steal. Hmm. Wow. And so, you know, you're using your power to rob a person of their dignity, their safety, what, of the truth and all those things. Hmm. And the place, the institution is safe for those who are doing the stealing, not safe for those who are having things stolen. Wow. Wow. Uh, so uh, it's sort of along those lines, when you talk about the way that power is abused, especially within a, in the church, as I work through your book, I think one of the things that surprised me is your use of the word deception. I think I'm, I'm the sort of person who every time I have to get a background check, I just get nervous that something's going to turn up. I mean, I've never been arrested, but I, it just makes me inherently, <laughs> did I accidentally do something that I've forgotten about? I mean, can you connect the dots for us between what is what's the connection between abuse and deception? Hmm. Well, you can't have abuse without deception. Hmm. It, it's the foundation, and and it all, frankly it goes back to Eden. You know, it, it's about 
using your position or your words or whatever it is. And what you're doing is believing something that isn't true. That's what Eve did. And that's what Adam did. They mm-hmm. believed something that wasn't true and they built choice, a choice on that. Mm. And then, and once you do that, then, you know, we have to justify our choice, which requires more deception. And then other people say, why are you doing that? Or what is that? Do? You know, maybe that's not a good idea. And so we have to have more deception, not then just of ourselves, but we have to deceive the others to say, well, I'm really not doing it that way. I'm doing a good thing. Mm. You know, so that's what happens when somebody gets called on, you know, you sexually abuse so-and-so. And of course I didn't, you know, and so you, but you have layers of self-deception. You know, you, you don't wake up one day and decide to abuse six women in your church. It just doesn't work like that. You know, there's a whole inner life and world and choices that have gone on of other deceptions and other uh, using or abusing of others, even if it's just in your head for a long time before it actually becomes an action. Right, right. We are a deceived people. We practice deception. We are. Yeah. So I, I think the thing that surprised me about the use of the word deception is that it seems to imply an intention, an, an intention to deceive. And I mean, what, what you just said maybe also kind of points to the reality of self-deception. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the phrase Jesus used, right, is, is uh, to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, is that something that, ha- that can happen unintentionally? Or I guess what I'm asking is, are, are abusers... Can you can you be an abuser accidentally? No. You cannot. You can make a mistake accidentally. That's a yeah. very different thing. Yeah. And if you if you do something, suppose somebody in your church comes to you about something and you respond to it and they come back to you and say you did a lousy job and you hurt me. Okay? You you weren't being a wolf in sheep's clothing. You were doing a lousy job for some reason. Maybe you weren't listening well, sure. maybe you, whatever. And when they do that, you respond. Wow, you know, that's not what I wanted to do. I want to, you know, whatever. And so there's somebody home when somebody says, ouch. <laughs> and and you're not home just to protect yourself or excuse what you did or say it was right when it was wrong or any of those things. So a wolf in sheep's, I mean, you can't disguise yourself to look like something else without making choices. I mean, you can't even do that on Halloween unless you choose a costume. You know, it's <laughs> a really basic example, but, but you I have mean, to do something to hide yourself. Yeah. I, I think um, I, some of what I'm wondering about is, is it seems like now that we're living in a time where culturally we're much more aware of power dynamics and abuse, I wonder if we've lost the category for the sort of person that you just described, the the person who is trying and making mistakes and acknowledges those mistakes. And um, it, it seems like it, it can go very quickly towards uh, this person made a mistake and that's labeled as abusive. Uh, but both. Yes. The first thing, though, is that I don't think we're as far along as you described <laughs> in terms of the church. I think the church has been poked, number one, by victims who have begun to really tell the story and drag things to the light. Mm. And two, by things like journalists. Yeah. You know, the victims tell you, you know, listen, they go to the journalist, then it's in the newspaper. 
And so I think that the church is responding because it's much more blatant than it used to be. There have also been some good responses, wonderful responses, changes and everything else. I don't mean to say that's not happening, but I think we're in kindergarten, Hmm. maybe first grade. And I think that we need to really see that because we need to have the humility that that brings that keeps us thinking about this before God and looking at it and looking at how he used his power. He used his power to become a baby, mm-hmm. which is as vulnerable as you can get. Yeah. And so I, I don't think we've done, it's beginning, but I don't think we've done much study in terms of the scriptures, which I think would turn upside down a lot of the ways we think about leadership um, in terms of humility and uh, what it's really like according to God, to take care of sheep and to be one. Here, here's what I'd really like to ask. And, and I'm hold, I hold this really loosely because of what you just said about, you know, we're kind of in these remedial stages of understanding and learning mm-hmm. uh, this, this whole world now. Um, I didn't have the language or the categories at the time, but only in hindsight do I realize, wow, I've actually, I, I experienced spiritual abuse mm-hmm. as a assistant pastor and uh for like two years and it was devastating i'm still like i'm still healing um and because of that i think that has given a that's like one of the ways that i can say that like i'm actually grateful for that at this point is it's given me a sensitivity that i think has really been part of the dna of the church that we started here in boulder county and so we get a ton of people who now that they have moved here and out of kind of the evangelical strongholds in the Southeast or the Midwest, um, they feel safe. There isn't this kind of uh, evangelical system kind of breathing down their neck. And so there's a, a ton of people who start experiencing some healing and, and yes. in the church. One of the things I've, I've noticed, and this is pure anecdotal, I'd love to hear if, if this is something that you, you, you see as well, but in this cultural moment around the topic of abuse, those who have come through our doors and have directly personally experienced spiritual abuse are some of the most courageous, trusting, open-handed uh, people that we have. But there are also a lot of people who really care for uh, those who have been uh, abused and and want to protect them, and they're very much the opposite. There is a very slow to trust um, kind of a, a, a safety as a prerequisite for any relationship, which is really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're going to feel really isolated and lonely if 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 you're expecting or, or need a hundred percent safety to, to be vulnerable enough to be in a relationship with somebody or in community, I I've, I've really wondered. And like, why is that dynamic the case? I would have expected it to be flipped in a lot of ways that those who have experienced the abuse are the slowest to trust and are going to probably act in ways that are out of pain and hurt. But those who haven't experienced it themselves are, are actually more defined by that. Can you, can you just help me understand, like, what's going on? Have you seen that? Is that a, is that a thing? Uh, or is that just yes, pure anecdote? Some, sometimes, certainly, it is. But I, what I would suggest is that many victims are starving. They want it to be okay. Mm-hmm. You think about somebody who grew up, as, let's say, a little girl in a house where she was sexually abused by her father and an uncle and all that. And then when she was in adolescence, she was raped twice by two different guys. And then Mm. she married a man who beat her until she divorced him. 
she is starving for safety, mm-hmm. rightly so. Yeah. And so sometimes they will trust because of that hunger, hmm. because they, they need it to be okay. So whereas I have not been abused, I am slow to trust. Mm. Of course, what I've seen and witnessed is whatever, but you, but. Might, you might have, yeah, you might have some good reasoning there. <laughs> sure. But human, human beings are flawed, no matter how wonderful they are. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's part of what Jesus meant when he said, by their fruit, you'll know them. Well, mm. the fruit, it doesn't just show up. It takes a whole year for it to show up, <laughs> even if, even if it's already a healthy fruit bearing tree, mm. as opposed to a little tree isn't going to have fruit for a long time. And mm. I know that. Mm. But I'm not starting. Man, I, I, I feel like I had a few options in my mind in terms of like, I wonder if she'll answer this way. And that wasn't one of them. Just that, <laughs> just that, that desperation for it yes. being like, I, I don't even have the strength anymore to, to, to put up the walls. And oh my God, like I'm, I'm sitting here tearing up because like I, what was already a profound appreciation for that courage. Yes. I'm just even, that's even more wrecking. Yes. Um, it is. Well, you think about it just from the position of being a human being who's been somewhere where you couldn't have water. Sure. For a long time. You've been in a desert and all of a sudden somebody comes to you and they bring you a cup of water. Are you going to ask them if it's pure water? <laughs> Are you going yeah. to make sure that they do something to prove it doesn't have poison in it? Of course not. You're going to gobble down the water mm. because if you don't, you're going to die. It's like mm. that. So that, that, that brings up a second question for me then, because, I, oh man, this is so good because, you know, the table has been around for five and almost five and a half years now. And I remember very vividly early in the like pre-launch stage when we're gathering people, because of my experience and having not wanting to even remotely visit anything that I experienced on people that I was called to shepherd and care for, I swung the pendulum so hard in the other direction in terms of like not leading in a way that was clear or, or confident. It was like kind of always walking on eggshells. And I I learned in that time that uh, spiritual neglect can be every bit as harmful for people as spiritual abuse because you don't tell them the truth about, or and you're, and you're not actually honest, and so it leaves them feeling unmoored and uh, uncertain. And like, what do I do with this? And and I think that you know, part one of the things that we wanted to ask is, is in, in this dynamic that we're experiencing right now, as pastors are trying to uh, like are are suddenly aware of abuse and wanting to not do that. What encouragement do you have? in terms of like how to not swing that pendulum in the other direction. Um, because I think that the, that second group of people I talked about earlier who like have not directly experienced it, but are kind of like maybe hyper vigilant to, to look for it everywhere. Um, that makes, that's a really hard dynamic, um, for pastor and congregate congregant to navigate. So how do you, how do you. Dogs. Oh, sure. They are. And guard dogs can jump quick. Hmm. So I I think in some ways you need to recognize that's what they are and affirm it Hmm. because they're wolves out there. So you Hmm. do need guard dogs, but that's Mm -hmm. not all you need. And they don't have to be only that. Can you, can you, can you go into that some more? Fill that out because that, that's, that sounds really, really important at first blush. (laughs) 
Well, if you if you if you have a relationship with somebody where you're only the guard dog, it's not a very rich relationship. <laughs> yeah. And it's there's no quiet in it. There's no nurture in it. There, hmm. I mean, the protection is good and needed and everything else, but it's not all that's needed. Hmm. It needs to be a full orbed relationship, which would be much more healing than just being a part of that as a guard dog or something like that. Hmm. And so their guarding is good and needs affirmation, but they also need to nurture and encourage. And, uh, you know, if you think that's safe and I'm troubled about it, you know, tell me the signs that you saw that make you think this person is safe. So learn their thinking about it. Hmm. That's good. You'll find gaps in it. Well, they're all, they're not always nice to me. Well, <laughs> there's all kinds of nice people out there who aren't safe. So how do sure. you tell that a nice person is a genuine person? Hmm. And they, you know, a lot of people who've been abused for so long really don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. They, they don't know how to tell whether nice is really nice or whether it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you watch for patterns and how they respond when you disagree and all those kinds of things. Because you want them, you want people who will do the guard dog thing to help victims develop. Man, that, so that is really, that is really helpful because it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong on this. It seems like the, the, that same kind of posture and approach while looking different would still apply to, you know, if you're a pastor and you, you, you are trying to encourage a guard dog who is not, who has not experienced abuse themselves that the right response there is, is curiosity of like, okay, so what would be abusive? Why would, why do you think that this is abusive or, or um, what is it that is on the line for you when you say that you are, you are afraid that the way that we're doing something is abusive? Like what, what's at risk there? Does it feel familiar? You know, those kinds of questions. Is that, is that kind of how you part of what you're doing that there is giving them ways of thinking and questioning and exploring something before they make a decision Hmm. before they accept it naively or before they reject it too quick Hmm. Hmm. that's good slowing things down that seems really important so and i've had many pastors and leaders ask me about this you know i i preached a sermon and somebody came up to me and said when you did this sentence i didn't agree with you and that was abusive (laughs) that's not abuse. Right. They may not like the sentence. And in fact, they may even be correct in their interpretation of what was said, but it's not abuse because they're not using a person wrongly. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not exploiting them. Hmm. They're being a frail human being who says some good things and some not so good things. And who wants, you know, how did that, how was that hurtful to you? How was that not helpful? Whatever. But unfortunately, and I find it disturbing, though not surprising, if the word abuse is overused, it's going to lessen the impact of victims. Abs- that, yeah. Honestly, that has been my biggest concern and worry, in, even, as I'm, even as we are rightfully celebrating and validating that like, this is finally on the church's radar in a lot of ways. That, how, do you, how do you mitigate that? Like, how, do, how, do we, how do we continue to... When we've swung the pendulum in the other direction, how do we prioritize the experience of victims in a way that doesn't just say you're overusing that and then actually compound the the victim's experience by like I think it would be easy to hear that you're you're actually mitigating their their hurt 
by doing that. I would be very hesitant to do that with somebody who's a victim. I would oh, certainly sure. ask curiosity <laughs> questions. What some people are finding is that the people who are talking like that are not victims. They're using the language of victims to mm. criticize or not like something or whatever, which is hurtful to victims. Mm. You know, yeah. um, so if, if a victim told me something was abusive, I'd sit down and listen. Mm-hmm. Oh, t- absolutely. Yeah. No, and that that gosh, even that I think is, and I don't think that this is this is intentional, but that strikes me as a as a use of power, right? Now that the authority of of like um, has been kind of like turned upside down, now we are now we're, we're seeing as the swing, pendulum has swung in the other direction that where there is overuse, maybe a a leveraging of that moment. Actually, you're using it. Um, for your own ends. And not, it may not be like in, individually abusive to somebody, but it's kind of abusive of the, of the moment maybe, and, and of the, the, the conversation that we're having. And I, man, I just, you know, I'm on Twitter and you see, you see the conversations about these things. And I'm just like, I ain't touching this with a 10 foot pole because there's no way to know whether somebody is, you know, whether they have been abused or not, um, or whether if they're, they're saying they have been, whether that's valid or not. And it's just like, no, this is not the medium or format for this. No. And it's just, is stunning to me how, how many people speak with a lot of certainty in, in, in that arena that I'm just like, I don't know how you, you can feel so certain about anything right now with this. Um, hmm. So that's really, it is really just encouraging, I think, and validating to hear you say that and, and describe that with your experience Maybe switching gears ever so slightly, um, Dr. Langberg. So the title of your book, or I should probably say your latest book, is is Redeeming Power. And so to redeem something means to buy it back. And uh, you know we've been talking a, a lot about the the abuse of power. I would love to talk maybe a little bit about what is what does it look like to redeem power, and and especially I think about you know, victims who have been abused um, by church leaders, maybe who have, who have used the Bible as a weapon, mm-hmm. and yet God gives his word and he gives his church as a gift uh, to his people. So h- how do we, in those circumstances, think about redeeming power and supporting people who have been abused in these contexts while also trying to help them gain or regain trust in, in God's word and in God's people? Well, one of the first words I would use is slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And also that words, words need to be spoken, but words are not going to fix it. Hmm. And if words fixed it, Jesus wouldn't have bothered to come. He's the word made flesh. That's what you have to do. Hmm. You have to be what it should look like. You have to manifest in the flesh, the character. And no pressure. No, of course not. But that was his idea, not mine. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. So we redeem power by looking at ourselves before him hmm. and becoming more like him for those who have been crushed. Or for that matter, for those who are doing the crushing. But, but um, it's not going to come by words. Obviously, words need to be spoken, but it's not going to come by words alone. Mm-hmm. That human beings need things lived out. And so 
And, and if you think about being a victim, that's particularly important because more often than not, perpetrators used words that are good to do bad things. You know, I, I'm doing this to you because I love you. Well, that's a diabolical statement. But they don't know. And so to say God loves you could be a really scary thing to say to a victim. Hmm. You know, the people who love me hurt me. And that wasn't really love, you know, but I didn't know that. And so it's who we are in the flesh. It's who we hmm. are, which need, means, you know, you go back to Galatians 5, what you want to know what that looks like. If you're going to walk with victims, you have to be patient. You have to be kind. Hmm. You have to have self-control. You're hmm. not in charge of the speed with which they heal. That makes so much sense. It, it, it is... I don't know. Like I, I haven't. I don't think I've quite like thought of it in the way that you you articulated it just now. But if trauma is this kind of embodied physiological reality, then why would its redemption or healing be any less embodied? Like it just mm -hmm. can't be. So it has to be incarnated, as as you're saying. Um, yes. And yeah. that that just makes a lot of sense. Which, of course, if you just take abuse completely off the table, that's the call to us as Christians, anyway. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. It's, yeah. not, it, it's not like it's a new idea in terms of what we're supposed to do and who we're supposed to be. And it strikes me that if a pastor in particular thinks that they can do that on their own, that that isn't actually the the calling of the church as a whole, as the body of Christ, mm -hmm. uh, to be doing that as a community, like no single person actually can can fully do that. That that strikes me that that about just how absolutely important it is for this to be a communal uh, function and mm. embodiment, not just mm. a, an individual pastor, because we're finite. We're going to, like you, like we were saying earlier, we're going to make mistakes. We, we're not actually Jesus. Hopefully we're pointing to him in our actions. Uh, but we, we need that one body, many parts to, to embody that. Yes. And you might be surprised. I think a lot of people would be because they're silent about it. How many victims come to church to watch? Hmm. And sometimes they come and sit in the back row and le le they come late and leave early just hmm. to watch. And they might watch for a year or two before they even stay long enough to say hello to somebody. So what, what people are doing with each other and around each other. And I'll tell you, if there's a couple sitting in front of them and he gets angry with his wife, but it's in church, so he can't do anything and reaches over and pinches her arm till she's got red marks on it. That victim will know. Hmm. You know, their, their antenna is. Hmm. Man. In, in When I referenced the um, having been a chaplain earlier, what you're describing is very similar to what we were told is, is like, you have to do this as a chaplain, which is you need to go where the soldiers are. Like they're just not going to walk into your office. You need and to have go... you shut the door. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. Exactly. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Um, but like, I remember I was, was actually, I was a chaplain for a, a um, an aviation battalion. So, uh, Apache helicopters. And I would just go walk down the flight line and talk to the mechanics and I'd be like, Hey, what in the world are you doing? I don't even have a clue. Like what your job is. Can you show me? Mm -hmm. And, and that, that interest in them and, and gosh, I, you're connecting so many dots for me because I, as soon as I said that, I'm thinking about what you, how you defined abuse about using someone for your ends 
And that is literally the opposite. It is, it would be like, hey, I want you to teach me in a way that actually dignifies and validates that they are useful, but for their sake, not mine. And so I, I can you, I'm just curious, what are some ways that you have seen either churches or pastors do that in a way that's mm. really practical mm. and can create that a, a sense of trustworthiness, of patient, slow trustworthiness in, in a culture, in a church, either especially in actions, but but also like things that are helpful for people to hear or see? Well, part of that, of course, is educating the church about abuse hmm. and what it does to people and what is needed for healing. And, you know, I don't know what kind of things you have church-wise, you know, in terms of trainings and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of churches also are developing um, like small groups of women, a small group of women and a small group of men who are willing to really study uh, different kinds of abuse and what it does mm. to people and how to walk with them. So that when somebody comes forward and says, whatever, you have somebody who will know how to walk with them. Mm. I, I can tell you that, that the people that I have had with terrible abuse in their backgrounds who had, uh, in most cases, these a couple women who came forward and just entered their lives and also did fun things with them and everything else, mm. the healing in those people was a different pace than those mm. who had no one. And so, yeah. uh, but, but they have to be educated. Sure. You know, there's a program that's been done by American Bible Society that's all over the world called Healing the Wounds of Trauma. And they you can get trained in that, learn how to facilitate small groups for people who have been traumatized in some way. Hmm. So there's a lot of resources like that that just takes time. And people who are selected to be part of it have to be carefully chosen and overseen and all of that. But it won't take long if you do those things for the church to be known as a safe haven. And people will come on that for that reason. Hmm. May may God do that in the church. Yeah, we've got uh, just two kind of final questions here that we have been asking everybody because we've realized that uh, the kind of our audience for this podcast are are the two le least likely kind of groups of people who are probably uh, to be listening to the same thing, and that is um, you know. Basically, those who are feeling very alienated by kind of evangelicalism broadly right now or have a direct experience that they feel alienated, disenfranchised by the church, who are, you know, listening to podcasts like the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and are like, yeah, no, I'm not even going anywhere near anything that smells like that. And the pastors who are like trying to care for them. And so yes. I wonder if you could speak especially to um, that first group, to those who are wondering if in a when their news feeds on Twitter or Facebook is just filled with, uh, you know, celebrity names they used to trust like Rabbi Zacharias and uh, Mark Driscoll. And what would you say to them by way of encouragement to give them hope that yes, there is absolutely a place in the church for them? How would you, how would you want to encourage them in that? Well, I, I would want them to know that thinking that those with big numbers and uh, status and, recognition and money and everything else. I don't think there's any place in the scriptures that says that's what it looks like to follow Christ. <laughs> and I'm not saying you can't have those things and follow him, mm. but those often 
draw people in that kind of largeness and success, so to speak, uh, draws people in. And we determine from the externals that God is blessing Hmm. something. Sure. And the only way you know that God's blessing something is when the people in it look like Jesus Christ, which none of those you've named did. Hmm. And so, and when they're, you know, they're not only look like him, but like him, they're safe for them. And, you know, they, they live out his love and his, that's what they, that's what you need to look for in, in uh, those situations Mm. Um, and realize, you know, that the externals, the bells and whistles that they're rejecting should be rejected by all of us. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if those are the measure of godliness, Jesus was a complete failure. So we've lost our way. And by we, I mean the church Mm. at large. And this is not just the U.S., I think hmm. it's global. And we, we think that the trappings and the success and the largeness and all of that are proof of the Spirit of God being present. Hmm. And there's nothing in that that proves that he's there. And I, he can be there in those things, but that's not what proves it. Mm-hmm. It, it is the character mm-hmm. of the person whose character is reminiscent of Oh, gosh, that's, that's amazing. So helpful. Thank you. Uh, I, I want to ask a question kind of about the other half of our of our audience. And those I think are pastors who feel like they're walking through a minefield. Uh, what encouragement can you offer pastors who are, are working really hard to understand issues of power and abuse and are trying to care for their people well, but but often in, in doing that feel like they're kind of being shot at from both sides? Well, they are. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) That is so validating. (laughs) Well, of course. I mean, first of all, you're talking about all kinds of people mixed together. You're talking about Mm. victims who are desperate to Mm. see certain things and to heal and everything else. You're talking about people who prefer the externals and the old ways, so to speak, and think you're ruining it all by talking about this other stuff mm. and everything in between. And and so you, you, you are getting criticized by both sides, shot at by both sides. Yeah. The comfort that I would give you is they shot Jesus from both sides. Mm. Mm. Now, he turned out dead <laughs> as a result of that. <laughs> But but the point is that's what it's like. Yeah, he walked perfectly, and they shot at him on both sides. Hmm. So, and I think that that's what truth, as he defines it, this it disturbs humans. We prefer our deceptions. We prefer to believe that our little church is the best one in the world. Hmm. Which maybe it is, but the fact of the matter is if you take a stand there, you will never be open to examining yourself or your church, hmm. wow. which every human needs to do and every human institution needs to do because we're all sinners and frail. Yeah, That's not a judgment. It's just the state of affairs on this planet. Wow. Wow. And so I, I think some of that, you know, has to, has to be what you feel is indeed what you're getting. <laughs> but the other piece is... That if you let it, it will drive you to Christ. Hmm. And you're going to somebody who knows what it's like to be shot at from both sides, who knows what it's like to be crucified, 
you know, to know what it's like to be called all sorts of names and everything else. And it, it will, if you let it, drive you to him. Amen. Wow. wow. That, that's, that's fantastic. Um, Dr. Langberg, I, I just want to thank you so much for um, being with us, for your wisdom, for your time, um, and for the hard work that you've done to just seek to understand these issues in the first place, but then communicate them so helpfully to us as well. Um, I, I wonder if I can maybe just conclude by asking you a, a, another quick question, but given the work that you do, how, how do you maintain hope? Hmm. Well, I tried to quit twice. <laughs> I did. I believe you. <laughs> and I, I, I generally did not ask God if that was the right idea. Mm. I told him I was doing it. Wow. <laughs> I just could, I couldn't, whatever. Felt like I couldn't go anymore. Mm. Um, and in both of those instances, which were years apart, uh, he met me in particular ways. And um the first time I was prompted to sit down and write down words that were adjectives that describe what I do. And just for the record, none of them were nice. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But then sitting there, I was also prompted to write down the opposite of them. And part of what I learned in that season of my life, you know, what I work with is ugly. Mm. But the opposite is good. Mm. You know, what I, I work with is full of death. The opposite is life, you know, like that. What I learned in that instance is that I, as a human being and a frail and finite one, have to purposely seek out on a human level those opposites. Hmm. I have to hmm. seek out beauty. I have to seek out harmony. I have, you know, rather than chaos and mm -hmm. everything else. Hmm. And so, and I, you know, I love walking in the woods. I love digging in the dirt. All they're all. I love, you know, when, when I think the entire world is disordered, I listen to Bach. He never played a disordered note in his life. <laughs> so that makes so much sense, actually. Yeah. So I have I have deliberately pursued those things. And of course, being on the slow side with God, as we all are, it took me a while to realize that what he had done was describe himself. Hmm. Wow. He is beauty. You know, he is order. Whatever. But that I'm human and I have to also look at I don't just have to talk to him, which I do and study and all of that, but I have to do it humanly. Oh. It requires trees and dirt and whatever, grandchildren and all kinds of things. <laughs> wow. So that, that was the first time. And then the second time, even though I was doing all those things, I said, okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have any room for any more of these stories in my head, whatever. And in that season, he, he showed me himself in, different ways but it was when the cross became absolutely central to what i do hmm. and what he what he did there and did in his life he who has all power hmm. he who knows all truth came and walked among lies like i've never heard before i've heard a lot he who came from beauty and health and everything else came and sat with lepers and touched them and all kinds of people that nobody would want in their lives and didn't. And that what he was doing with the work, if I would let him, was teaching me about who he is. Mm. Changed the way I thought. And so those two times altered my life in different ways. And uh, 
it's it's given me him. Hmm. <laughs> the work has given me him in a way I would not have known him otherwise. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah. Actually, I, I had a, uh, when I was in the season of spiritual abuse myself, I had a pastor, mentor, friend who has also experienced this himself, go to Colossians one twenty four and preach that to me all the time, which is when Paul says that I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for your sake, the church. And what is, what is Christ, what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Paul is Pauline. Uh, there's nothing, if not a high view of, of the cross in Pauline's theology. Uh, it's an experience of Christ's affliction. And so I just want to say that by way of thank you and uh, for all you've done for those who are filling up what is lacking for us in the church, uh, which is the unjust use of power to abuse and use them. And so um, thank you for that, um, because I don't know, I just uh, I think sometimes when we when we think about uh, leaders or experts who have dealt with this kind of thing, we almost have a superhuman view of them and the humanity that you just described in in sharing that is actually like really really comforting and and uh i think embodying uh colossians 124 for us so thank you so much for everything wow what an incredible conversation with dr langberg so we've been doing this segment where we come back and reflect on the conversation we just had called you know, if everything just changed, what just changed for you? That was a mind-bending conversation. So, uh, Brad, why don't you just very succinctly uh, summarize for us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what just changed there? Well, first of all, let me give some context for people, too. We, we had more than a small amount of fear and trembling in anticipation of this interview. And the reason why is because the topic of abuse, especially in the church, is would you say, Bryce, it's the most volatile topic, like the the most fraught with landmines and difficult to navigate for pastors right now? Let's see. In a in a in a period of time where pretty much everything is open to the potential of massive, cr- overly pointed criticism, is this the worst one? I I, don't, I mean, maybe it's hard to pick. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons why we asked, like, okay talk to us about deception and intention and um, about like, you know, trying to get to is, is the word abuse overused is because it's easy to feel right now at like, we are like, there's just no way to speak strongly to something or to, or even humbly, but clearly to anything, uh, without that becoming a a thing. And so when she said, you can't accidentally abuse someone, it kind of disturbed <laughs> me. Uh, so to answer your question, like the thing that changed is like, I'm asking a lot more questions now because, you know, the validation uh, of that leaves me actually a little bit skeptical still uh, in ways that surprise me because I think it's really easy to, uh, you know, especially as a leader, but anybody, this is human, like we can hide behind our intentions. We can say, well, I didn't mean to abuse you, so I couldn't have. Like, we could take even what she said there as uh, in, in a way that is self protective and abusive. But at the same time, the the encouragement that is for pastors who are who are like hyper cautious and worried about whether or not they are abusing someone, like, is just unbelievable. And it's got me asking, okay, why? What? 
if there is somebody who I expected to uh, operate and to answer a question as if this were a gray area where there is this spectrum and it's this kind of threshold and here's where we would draw the line, it would be Dr. Diane Langberg. And and for her to like kind of respond with such a black and white clarity is is causing me to ask like, oh, wow, why? What is it that I've been, uh, like what definitions and assumptions have I been operating off of that that is so shocking to me? Yeah. I mean, is, is, is what you're getting at the, just sort of the reality that it, it, um, it feels like the, the, the general assumption is that like any hierarchy, any authority is sort of, uh, at least mildly abusive. Yeah. I mean, I think that the assumption is that if you have any positional power, then there's no way for you to steward or exercise that power in a way that's not going to result with bodies in the wake. You know, I'm overstating that for the sake of illustration, but yeah. um, that that just goes back to the prompt for this whole mini series of, well, how do we move from a Lord Acton approach to power that sees all power as uh, corrupted, all power corrupts and, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, to a Peter Parker approach that says with great power comes great responsibility. So how do we steward that well? And she basically. I mean, I don't want to put words into her mouth, but like my takeaway is like, I mean, if you're actually asking that question in the first place, you're probably not abusing people, right? They're, they're, like if you genuinely care about the answer to that question, there are probably ways that you can steward it better. Um, and maybe like we can learn from mistakes and and it's not like people won't feel hurt um, because you're finite human sinner. Um, but that's a different thing than what you know Rabbi Zacharias did or what yeah, Mark Driscoll yeah. has done or you know like that there's a category for like needing to be better at your job yeah, sure that is in between you know and that being and a abuse. sheep at the same time that you're a shepherd and needing to grow in maturity and the fruit of the spirit as she described in character yeah. absolutely yeah. um I mean hell I mean she's talking about self-deception I'm like ah, man I am really good at that one that's easy <laughs> It's yeah. really easy to be self-deceived. So I just, the thing that changed for me is like, I feel more hopeful about this topic than I think I've ever felt yeah. just as the result of that one conversation. And I feel yeah. like, I feel pastored by her. Follow yeah. that, man. What did you, what changed for you? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I would definitely agree with what you just said there that I actually feel much more optimistic about this topic after that conversation. Yeah. And um, I, the, the thing that really stood out to me was w- what she said just about like the human nature and the embodied nature of, uh, and I think you even made this connection, but that like if, a, if abuse is, is not that this is the only way that abuse can happen, but we typically think of abuse as harm against another body that the mm-hmm. healing has to also be embodied too. Sure. And, 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 but, but what she um, said when I asked her about how do you maintain hope? And she talked about, you know, I have to seek it out. I have to seek out beauty. I have to seek out what's true. Trees and dirt and music. Um, the perfection of Bach is the, is the counterbalance to the chaos of helping people who are uh, recovering from trauma. And yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, incredibly beautiful. Um, but I also think it's so helpful for us pastorally, not as pastors, but like, as we think about what, what does it look like to, um, sort of respond in a pastoral way that 
that we act, you have to pursue those things, right? Mm. Like we live in a world that's broken. We have to not just say, well, that's broken. And so everything sucks. We have to actually pursue beauty. We have to actually pursue truth. Um, and, but that happens. It's a very human and it's a very physically embodied um, reality. And that is such a like good and needed reminder because if you are either vocationally a caregiver, like a pastor or a counselor, therapist, or, you know, whatever, or, or you are just naturally like in in the church, someone who cares for people, um, it can feel really unloving, uh, to not go there into the places of brokenness all the time. And, and, and to feel guilty to, it feels almost self-indulgent maybe to, to invest in and expose yourself to beauty. And, but, she just said the context for her talking about that was I tried to quit twice and it's actually really important and, and necessary for her uh, to continue to do what she does uh, by, by doing that. And that is, I, I don't know. I just really appreciate that reminder because I mean, how many statistics have you and I seen uh, recently about how many pastors have seriously considered quitting over the last you know year and a half during the pandemic <laughs> and, and how much, brokenness and anxiety that we are both absorbing and and just in the midst of in order to like care for people and the importance of what you just said i just man hearing that from from her was Mm -hmm. was like really helpful and validating and encouraging yeah 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 Thanks so much for joining us today. We would love to know what just changed for you. Join the conversation on our Facebook group. You can search for Everything Just Changed on Facebook or click the link in the show notes and let us know what changed for you after listening to this episode. Everything Just Changed is edited by Nathan Michelle. Our logo and theme music are by Danny Rankin. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Join us next week. We're continuing our series on power, talking about information and misinformation as power. It's going to be a unique conversation for us, and you're not going to want to miss it. That's next week on Everything Just Changed.